We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Years ago, uh, I was still in my 20s, I was a pastor of a little church far from here, and I was called to the home of an elderly man whose wife had died in the middle of the night. And it was a really traumatic event. He, they had been in bed, sleeping, middle of the night. He wakes up because she's making noise and she finds that she's having a seizure right next to him. And, you know, you can imagine you wake up from a sound sleep and your wife of 50 plus years is there convulsing in bed and making awful noises and you can't do anything to stop it. And once she finally stops moving, she's dead. So, you know, I don't think I, I would ever know what to say to someone in that situation. But at 28 or 29, I sure didn't know what to say. And so I was praying hard as I drove to that house. And when I got there, I was very surprised to find that his adult daughter, who was probably mid-40s to 50s at the time, was there and seemed, she didn't seem at all like somebody who just like lost her mother. She was, made a lot of jokes. She was laughing uh, at just about everything that was said. And she was just being extremely cheerful, which I found odd. And every once in a while, the father, man I came to see, would start to talk about what had happened the night before. At one point he said, well, that sure was a shock last night. And every time his daughter would divert the conversation to something else. And that's when I realized what was happening. I'm no psychologist, but I, I came to understand she didn't want to face the reality of what had happened. And she sure didn't want to be there while her dad faced the reality of what had happened. She thought distracting him and ignoring it was the right way to go. And I can't blame her. Nobody really equips us for those things, but I knew deep down inside, eventually, sooner or later, he was going to have to sit with what he'd been through. He was going to have to grieve. He was going to have to process it. And that's true of any bad thing that happens, any harsh reality. Ignoring it doesn't make it go away. In chapter 6, you know, chapters 4 and 5 have been very happy chapters. Chapter 6 is bringing us back to the cold slap of reality. You know, we've talked about to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we've talked about how uh, the earthly tent that is our body is going to give way to a, a heavenly dwelling. And we've talked about uh, the, the fact that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. And this is such good news. You can just dwell in chapters 4 and 5 of 2 Corinthians and, and just think, you know, being a Christian is a lot of fun. It's just, it's just wonderful. There's just no reason to ever be sad if you're a Christian. And then you get to chapter 6 and you go, oh yeah, everything about being a Christian isn't easy. There are some, uh, some uh, unpleasant and difficult realities. And, and in this chapter, two that are mentioned are, number one, we are the standard by which people, non-Christians in our culture, measure Christ. They'll never meet Jesus most of them will never read a Bible or go to church. So they base their opinion of who Jesus was and what Christianity is all about on us. That's reality number one that we're going to talk about. Number two, the second reality this chapter talks about is that holiness, the whole goal of being a Christian, it doesn't come easy. Accepting Christ, being saved is easy. Following Jesus and becoming holy is hard. So... Those are the two realities we'll look at in chapter 6. Let's start with verse 1. Working together with Him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. 
For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So he's getting into this, he has just been talking about how we have the ministry of reconciliation. That's the way chapter 5 ends. We are God's ambassadors, as we talked about last week. An ambassador is sent into a foreign country. They spend their life living in a place that is not home to them. And while they learn to love their, the place where they live, and learn to appreciate the food and learn the language and appreciate the good things about the culture, and those are their people, that's not really their home. They represent another world. And that's, that's the way we're supposed to live as Christians. And in the same way, if you, were, if you lived in Thailand or if you lived in uh, Kenya or if you lived in Argentina and the only American you knew was that American ambassador, well, that's how you would, you would base your opinions of Americans on what you saw in that person. And that's, that's what we represent for these people. We, our job is to say with urgency, Paul says, behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Here's another way to look at our role. Um, when I was, some of you know, I went to college to be a broadcaster. This was before I felt called to the ministry. And no, the two fields are nothing alike. They just aren't. I, I, very little of what I learned in broadcasting school helps me in ministry. Sad to say. But uh, I wanted to be on TV. That was my dream when I was a teenager. And so when I got to be a junior or senior, I, I finally got to take the class. The title of the class was Television Performance. Oh boy, I couldn't wait. The man who taught this class was a guy named Dr. Hawes. Uh, Dr. Hawes had worked in TV in the past and uh, he was legendary for this one class. This was supposed to prepare you to be on the air. Now, Dr. Hawes, if I can describe him, uh, imagine sort of a Liberace, but not quite so flamboyant, right? Just, you know, you, could, you walked in and you thought, okay, this guy's different. Um, but the first day of class, it, it was legendary in, the, in our school. The first day of class was the same every year. He would stand everybody up in front of the class one by one and ask you to read something. And then he would ask the whole class to write down comments about your appearance and your voice, and your presentation, and then he would give you his feedback. And the students were usually pretty kind because they knew they were going to have to get up there too. But he was brutal. He would tell you. You know, one, one guy said, uh, I remember one guy in my class said, you know, I can't decide. I, I kind of want to go into comedy, but I also kind of want to go into the news. And he said, frankly, you're, you have a face for comedy. Uh, another young man uh, who actually went on to have a TV career in Houston, but I remember him saying to him, you should, you should get a different haircut and start lifting weights. You make a darling little boy, but it's time to be a man. So these are the kinds of comments. I won't tell you what he said about me, but you know, it, it, was, it was useful in that you have to have thick skin. You have to be willing to be scrutinized if you go into that business. Of course, I never did go into that business because God had other ideas for me. But in a way, we're all in that business. We're all being scrutinized. We, we say we follow Jesus, and people decide what they believe about Jesus based on what they see in us. So that's why verse 3 is so important. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in our ministry. 
We put no obstacle in anyone's way. The, the term stumbling block is used a lot in Scripture. Jesus talked about it. Don't, don't be someone who puts a stumbling block in front of one of these little ones. Otherwise, it'd be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around your neck. Um, what is a stumbling block? It's something that causes someone to stumble. It's something that causes someone to fall away from Christ. Somebody who has an interest, who the gospel appeals to them, but they see in you something and say, well, I don't want anything to do with that. Now, the classic story that we tell ourselves is about the Christian kid who grows up in church and goes to youth group and youth camp and gets baptized and everything, and then goes off to college and their atheistic professor convinces them that Christianity is nonsense and they come home with, you know, with all these weird atheistic views. And I'm not saying that never happens. It does. But far more often, the story is this. That Christian kid has grown up seeing hypocrisy in some of the Christians in his life. Maybe his parents, maybe people at his church, maybe the leaders in his youth group. And so when he gets to college, that professor is just finishing off what the devil's already been doing. That professor is just helping that kid justify what he's already seen. Yeah, I knew it. It was phony all along. And so we need to understand, and this is not just about teenagers. This is about people you work with, people that are in your extended family, people in your neighborhood. It's so important for us to realize that others judge Christ based on what they see in us. So we should ask the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts and show us where those hypocrisies are, where those areas are, where we're not practicing what we preach. Verse 4. You're glad to see there's a but, but it's not a happy but. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Oh, wait a second. It sounds like he's bragging. Well, wait and look at what he's bragging about. By great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. And there's a lot there, and this is an example of the power of paradox in, in the way Paul wrote. Paul was a great writer. He doesn't get the credit he deserves. But what he's saying is, what I'm most proud of is we've given it all, and it's cost us. It has cost us. This, this process of representing Jesus well among the Gentiles has been costly. It would have been far easier for us to take a more relaxing route. I could have stayed in Israel and been a good Pharisee, and I would have earned the praise of my neighbors and probably be married and have lots of kids and, and everybody would look up to me. That would have been easier. Or I could have defected over to the Gentile side and, and gotten into money and, and power and pleasure and you know, I, I've got a good mind. I could have made my way in that world too. But God had a different path for me. I'm not here to do that. I'm here to represent Christ. And that means, that means there are difficulties coming. Now, Paul, as you know, if you know anything about his writings, you know that later on in this letter, he gives us a more detailed resume, as it were, of the sufferings he's experienced as an apostle and follower of Jesus. But right here, this is just a short little list of here's what it's like to follow 
Jesus. It's not always easy. In fact, in some ways, it's harder than to not follow him. So then comes a little parenthesis. So Paul has, has said his piece about uh, you need to stand up for Jesus and, and make sure you represent him well and don't be a stumbling block to anybody. And he's about to talk about the other harsh reality, but first he says this, verse 11. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. So there's a stereotype I think some people have about Paul, that he was this harsh, unfeeling guy, and that couldn't be farther from the truth. You see it many times in the book of Acts, and you see it in his writing, and this is one of those cases. Another way of saying what he says in those three verses is, listen, I am, I am pouring out my heart here. I'm holding nothing back. I'm telling you exactly how I feel and everything I've been through, the good and the bad. I'm not trying to make myself look good. I am, I am sharing my heart with you. I wish you would do the same with me. Because remember, the occasion for writing 2 Corinthians is what? Paul wrote 1 Corinthians because they had written him a letter and said, we, we need help with these issues. And Paul being Paul, he answered their questions, but then he added a few other issues to it. Okay, you have problems with it? Well, I see some other problems you have. Sent off that letter and thought, oh, that'll solve other problems. But it didn't. And there was a painful visit in between in which he went to Corinth and was mistreated in some way and a painful letter that he sent in response. So there's, there's been some conflict between Paul and the Corinthians. And even though at the beginning of this letter, he makes it sound like, okay, Timothy told me that things are better now, he's still hurt. He wants to return to the kind of relationship he had with these friends before. And that is, that is the way we all should feel when there is conflict. It's not always bad to have conflict. It's not, in fact, it's impossible to go without it because we're sinners. There are going to be times when we disagree. Even in a church like ours, where I think we can all agree, things are going really well. We, there's a lot of good feeling in this church, and people are treating each other well, but there are going to be times in the future where we disagree, where people get their feelings hurt, where people are overlooked and, and justifiably rise up and say, hey, this is not right. And we need to understand that doesn't mean that something terrible is happening. It just depends on how we handle it. If we handle it biblically, if we uh, resolve the conflict in a, in a Christ-like, gracious way, we can be stronger on the other side. And that's what Paul's trying to facilitate here. I'm, I'm being honest with you. Will you be honest with me? I'm, I am giving you everything. Would you come to me with that same spirit? I speak as to children, he says in verse 13. I don't think that's an insult. I think that's him saying, you're like my children. I, I, I want you to widen your heart to me. Like a parent who is upset that his child won't speak to him. When is this going to end so we can have our relationship back? Verse 14. Okay, so, so here we get into the second reality. And that's this idea that holiness is hard. The life of holiness doesn't happen automatically. It has to filter into every part of your life, and that's the work of a lifetime. He says in verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Belial is one of many names that the Jews had for Satan. 
Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and so you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So the first thing he says is don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And that's a teaching that has often been applied to marriage, and I think rightly so. Um, I can remember I was a teenager the first time I heard this. My pastor, pastor of the little bitty church that I grew up in, I'm so grateful to him for this. He decided he wanted to teach a Bible study just to the teenagers, and there were like five of us. It's such a small church. And he came to this part, and I, le- I didn't say anything, but I left mad. I thought, that's just not, you can't tell somebody they can't marry someone who's not a Christian. That's just, that's just wrong. But as I grew older and as I watched, that's, that's absolutely right. Anytime this comes up, people will come and say, yes, but I have a friend who married a man who was not a believer. He got saved, and now they're a happy Christian couple. And I know those things happen, but I can tell you at least 10 times that many where it doesn't go that way, where a, a Christian person, and it's often a woman, a Christian woman who marries a, Christ, a non-Christian man, although not always, um, and she thinks, well, I can win him. But what happens is one of two things usually. Either she has to compromise her faith to keep the marriage alive, or she has to hurt the marriage by following Jesus, and he's not willing to go. That idea of unequally yoked, you understand it's the picture of two oxen or donkeys. If you're married, you probably prefer donkey, right? Because that's what your spouse seems like to you sometimes. Um, but if one is strong and the other's weak, or if one pulls to the right while the other walks straight, well, it's going to hurt both. Only if they're equally yoked, they're equally matched, they're both pulling in the same direction, is it a healthy relationship? And that's what Paul's saying. And for I, I, it doesn't seem like I'm needing to sell this to you, but for anybody who still says, yes, but, I always say, if you want to win somebody to the Lord, the best way is not to marry them. The best way is to say, Jesus comes first in my life. And therefore, I can't continue with this relationship. I love you. I I think you're a wonderful person. I want to see you come to the family of God. But I can't win you by compromising what is most important to me. However, I think we do this passage a disservice when we think it's only about marriage. In that same church where... um, that I told you the story about earlier. There was a deacon in our church. He was just one of my favorite people, just one of those guys that you just couldn't help but love, just a kind-hearted, good man. Um, And he came to me once and he said, I'm sorry to have to do this, but I I feel like I need to resign as a deacon. And I said, oh, please don't. I mean, you're you're wonderful. You're everything a deacon should be. We need you. And he said, he explained what was going on. His brother, who was also a member of the church, Uh, had convinced him to go in with him in starting a a store there in town. And it was going to be one of those big convenience stores. You'd get gas and you'd get all your groceries. It was going to be something that that little town had never seen before. And then it became, okay, we want it to have a little drive-through area. We want people to be able to drive through and stop under this little 
overhang and, and ask for stuff and we'd go get it and bring it to them. Okay, that's exciting. And then it was, well, you know, we really can't make money unless we're going to sell, uh, you know, alcohol and cigarettes. And my, the, the brother who was a deacon said, well, I, I don't want to do that. And his brother just kept on him and said, you know, Howard Butt was a, a Christian evangelist and he sells that stuff at HEB. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. And he came to me and he said, you know, he, I had already gotten in so far, I didn't feel like I could pull out because then his dream would be lost, right? We'd, he'd already made some investments. And he said, but I, I don't feel like I continue, continue as a deacon if I'm running a store where we're selling things that I don't think are right. And I, I said, I don't, I don't know. I think we'd still take you. I, I, but he was, he was convinced in his own heart. And I think about that story when I think about being unequally yoked, because it's not just about being married to somebody. It's about who do you make a partnership with? Who do you bond yourself to? This doesn't mean that you can't run a business with someone who's not a believer. It doesn't mean that you can't work with someone who's not a believer. Well, that would really limit the, the amount of jobs we could take. But the problem, my, my friend's problem was he had gotten into a, a business arrangement where if he stuck to his convictions, the business would die. If he compromised his convictions, the business might thrive. And in fact, it did. And that's what I'm talking about. I think that's what Paul is talking about is watch the agreements you make and think through the unintended consequences of those agreements. It's more than just well, I think if we got together and did this, we'd make money. Yeah, maybe so. But what is it going to do to your witness? What is it going to do to your walk with the Lord? Now, I am happy to say that although that was a continuing source of shame for that man, he continued to be a faithful member of the church, and from all I could tell, continued to be a faithful, good Christian man. His brother kept going to the church too. Every Sunday, he clipped his fingernails during the service. I don't know why. I don't know if that was some kind of commentary on my preaching or what, but every Sunday I'd hear tick, tick, and I'd look up. There he is. He's clipping those fingernails. He had the neatest fingernails in town. But anyway, that's, to, that's, to, that's beside the point. So holiness is not easy. You have to make tough decisions. You have to let that filter into every relationship, every facet of your life. And then he ends with a couple of analogies, a couple of metaphors that I think are very useful. The first one is, he says, we're God's temple. Now, this isn't the only place Paul uses this metaphor. We are the temple of the living God. And it's ironic that fitness companies and gyms and nutrition companies have co-opted this language, your body is a temple, as if it means that you should be in good physical shape. Nothing wrong with being in good physical shape if you can pull it off, but that's not at all what God's talking about when he says, you are temples of the Holy Spirit. What was the temple? The temple was not a church building, right? The fact is, uh, as wonderful as this building is, if we didn't have it, we'd still be First Baptist Conference. But the temple was different. The temple was constructed by Solomon to be the place where Israel met with God. You don't have to come to this building to meet with God. You don't have to come to any building to meet with God. Thanks to, the, thanks to the resurrection and the day of Pentecost, you can meet with God wherever you are. This is the place where God's people gather to worship Him. But the temple was different. The temple was where God dwelled. And so you went there. In a, in a way, the temple was the bridge between heaven and earth. 
When you were in the temple, you were in the presence of Yahweh and you weren't in His presence anywhere else. At least that was the way the Israelite mind thought. And so what Paul is saying is, you're a little temple now. Everywhere you go, you carry the presence of the living God within you. And so people who want to know who God is, people who are casting about for answers and who long for grace, even though they don't know what to call it, they can meet Him in you, but only if you represent Him well, only if you walk in holiness. And that whole metaphor of your body as a temple doesn't lead Paul to say, so therefore do a lot of push-ups and and go walk. No, but he says, be careful how you use your body. And another part of the scriptures, he says, "Can can you even imagine uniting the body of Christ with a prostitute? How dare you even think of that? That's a disgusting thought. Well, then why would you let your body do that? Why would you let your mouth say foul things or gossip about people or lie? Or, or, or yell abusive things? Why would you use your body to hurt others or to cheat others? Your body is God's temple. Holiness is important. In the same way that God's temple in Jerusalem was a sacred place, and you didn't just act casually there. And there were very specific ways you had to handle everything in that temple. That's, that's the, the really boring parts of the Old Testament that we just kind of skip over. That's what they're about, is handling all these holy things rightly. And that's the way we should be about holiness in our own lives. The second metaphor he uses is the metaphor of adoption. He says, I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Because we're His, therefore we're not like others. And the image I get in my mind is the image of an older kid who gets adopted. You know, say somebody, not, not an infant, not even a toddler, but... Uh, fourth, fifth grade, maybe even teenager, and they're adopted into a family. They've been living all their lives on the street. They've been living all their lives basically fighting for everything they get. And they've grown rough and they've grown kind of barbaric. And then this nice family comes along where they're supplied with everything they need. And there's an adjustment there, isn't there? There's bound to be. That little little boy or girl is not going to act like the natural born children of that family. They're still going to say ugly things. They're still going to steal food from their brothers and sisters and steal toys and and get angry and throw things and get angry and hit. And the the parent, the new parents are going to say, listen, that's not the way we act in this family. That may be the way you acted before, but now you're part of this family and we act differently. If you don't like something, you talk about it. You don't yell. If he has something you want, you ask for it. You don't steal it from him. If you get angry with me, you don't hit me. You ask me, you tell me what's going on, and we'll work it out. But that's not how we act in our family. And that's not going to change overnight, is it? That's going to take a long time. That's going to take a period of years. That adopted parent, adoptive parent is going to have to be very patient and is going to have to continue teaching and training and is going to have to show grace but also firmness. And it's going to take years, but that's a perfect picture of the process of sanctification in the Christian life. If you ever get frustrated and say, why am I still committing these same old sins like I always did? I thought I was supposed to be different now. Well, remember, you were adopted. You're not the natural born child. You were adopted into a family where they do things differently, and it takes time. So be patient with yourself. God's not going to give up on you, and the Holy Spirit is inside of you, and you will get there someday, but don't give up. All right, so... 
Thank you all for being here. I'm going to close us in prayer and uh, be in prayer for Sunday services. We got the Lord's Supper this Sunday and baptisms the next, so some exciting things coming up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we lift up before you uh, the name of Jesus by which we are saved and pray that we would represent that name well. Lord, help us to examine our hearts by the power of your Spirit so that we could know what areas to grow in in the days ahead. We thank you that you are going to make us just like you someday. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.